welcome to People, Places, Planet Pod, the official podcast of the Environmental Law Institute, a nonprofit, nonpartisan organization working to ensure a healthy environment, prosperous economies, and vibrant communities founded on the rule of law. Welcome to this week's episode of the People, Places, Planet podcast. I am your host, Georgia Ray. Today, I will be speaking with Environmental Law Institute Science Fellow, John M. Doherty, about his PhD research focused on ocean circulation in the high latitude North Atlantic and its impact on climate variability across different timescales. John is an oceanographer and interdisciplinary climate scientist who aims to bridge gaps between science, law, and society. Currently, he is working towards those goals through his work on ELI's Climate Judiciary Project. Before joining ELI, John earned a PhD in Earth Sciences from the University of Hong Kong and an MS in Environmental Science at American University. Our discussion will explore connections between John's paleoclimatology research, current climate change policy discussions, and barriers associated with making climate science education accessible. Unprecedented levels of anthropogenic CO2 and greenhouse gas emissions necessitates climate research, education, and policy solutions. As the Intergovernmental Panel on Climate Change predicts future warming, climate scientists play a crucial role in understanding what ecosystem functions and services are impacted by climate change. Without effective climate science communication, coordination, and collaboration among federal agencies, NGOs, scientists, and legislators, environmental policymaking processes will be incredibly difficult. John, thank you for being here with me today. Thank you for having me. So before we dive in, I'm wondering if you could give a brief synopsis of your research and how it evolved over the course of your PhD. Sure. Yeah. So I worked in the field of paleo-oceanography, which is all about going back in time and studying the behavior of the ancient oceans. I was particularly interested in the behavior of the North Atlantic and how circulation changes in this region changed over different timescales. And I looked at two of those timescales, one on the order of around 400,000 years ago, which I'll call the deep time component of my research, and one over the last several hundred years. So what were your primary findings when considering the deep time scale? Yeah, so this this work was really motivated by the notion that the world was warm 400,000 years ago on this, this deep time scale, and it could potentially be analogous to the present day ocean. Uh, there had been some modeling studies to suggest that the polar Nordic seas contribute more strongly to global circulation by the sinking of deep water masses in that region under global warming. And so my colleagues and I wanted to see if that was the case for the ancient ocean as well. And it turns out that the shells of plankton, which are uh, preserved in the sediment record, capture all kinds of useful oceanographic information through their shell geochemistry, which can be linked to changes in deep water formation. And so by taking a deep sea sediment core and looking at the chemistry of these shells, my colleagues and I reconstructed uh, deep water formation in the Nordic seas and found that, yes, this site was an important region of deep water formation under a warming climate. That's really interesting. And what did you find closer to modern times, specifically with your work on the Labrador shelf? How was that different than the deep time scale? 
Right. So plankton shells aren't the only things that can be used to reconstruct oceanographic information. We also have long-lived algae called cryptocoralline algae, which secrete exoskeletons that incorporate chemical information, such as uh, a proportion of stable isotopes of nitrogen, which can be used to infer where nutrients came from and arrived at the shelf. And my colleagues and I reconstructed sort of this, this change in nutrient source to the Labrador shelf over the last several hundred years using nitrogen isotope geochemistry. And we found that the change in, in nutrient sources kind of depended on climate variability. So we found a statistically significant relationship between the Atlantic multidecadal oscillation, which is a mode of internal or non-human climate variability, and we found that, that this was associated with regulating nutrients to the shelf. And to what degree is this climate change human-induced or these patterns that you're seeing altered or disrupted by human changes? So the correlation that we found between the Atlantic multidecadal oscillation, this mode of non-human climate variability and nutrient supply to the Labrador shelf seems to disappear at around 1870. And the argument that my colleagues and I put forth in the 2021 paper is that prior to 1870, these sort of non-human changes in climate were important for uh, supplying the nutrients to the shelf. However, uh, in more recent times, sort of 1870 and onwards, we've seen a disruption to the ocean circulation in the North Atlantic that's been tied to anthropogenic warming. And so we've kind of made the argument that this change in the, the North Atlantic circulation driven by human-induced climate change has also disrupted the flow of nutrients to the Labrador shelf over uh, the last 150 years. When we're talking about those changing nutrients, why should we care? What exactly do those nutrients do and how do they affect life in and around the Labrador shelf and the world's oceans more generally? So phytoplankton are the base of the marine food web, and so complex ecosystems rely on their fate. Nutrients are essential for phytoplankton growth. For example, nitrogen, one of the nutrients that I work very closely on, is used in amino acid synthesis, which is required for protein. Without those nutrients, phytoplankton can't bloom, and so organisms that rely on phytoplankton as a food source and potentially ecosystems could also suffer. This could also have implications for biological resources in the North Atlantic, such as uh, economically important fisheries. Is there a methodological or other type of intersection between the work you have done in marine biology and the work you did in paleooceanography? Yeah, so stable isotope geochemistry is mostly what I've used in paleooceanography. And this tool, these stable isotopes, are also used in pollution since they can be useful for informing sort of where nutrients came from. You can imagine that you can use the same tools to investigate where nutrient pollution sources uh, originated from. Stable isotopes are also used in food web studies, so it's really a, a very versatile and interdisciplinary technique. What are some of the policy implications of your research? Well, I mentioned fisheries briefly. And the same circulation changes that is decreasing nitrogen or nutrient supply to the Labrador shelf is actually increasing that supply to the Gulf of Maine. 
So if these changes do end up impacting fisheries, you can imagine the need for cooperation on management between the U.S. and Canada under continued warming and oceanographic changes. So you're saying that while we have a decrease in nutrients to the Labrador Shelf, you're having an increase in nutrients around the coast of Maine, and both of those are affecting fisheries ecosystems in their own way. Both of those are affected by changes in ocean circulation. We don't know whether or not it's affecting the ecosystems and the fisheries in that region, but that's just an example of how this might be relevant um, to an interested policymaker later on. You've really been focused on the hard sciences in the past, and now you're working at ELI and you're working with the Climate Judiciary Project, and you're focusing more on this policy realm and educating judges, and that's pretty different from your past work. For our listeners that may not know, what is the Climate Judiciary Project? So the Climate Judiciary Project at ELI has the broad goal of educating judges on the basic facts of climate science climate impacts, and the legal trends related to climate litigation. Judges are increasingly seeing related cases to climate change on their dockets. And so we just want to make sure that they have an understanding of the science so they can make the most informed decisions when those cases arise. And how did you find yourself involved with CJP, given your background in the hard sciences? Well, after my PhD, I did work in research for a little bit, which I enjoyed doing a lot. However, I felt that my knowledge and skill set could be better used to contribute to society and governance efforts on climate questions. Judges who are typically generalists without scientific training are being, again, increasingly asked to shape climate law and policy in the U.S. and abroad. And I felt it was very important for me as a scientist to be involved in that effort and share my skill set. Yeah. How important is it for a scientist like yourself to be involved in this type of work? Very. Yeah. So, I mean, scientists are the experts in these fields and have important uh, contributions to make when people are discussing questions that have uh, relevance for society. And what is your role on the project? What's something you've been working on recently? So broadly, I provide scientific expertise to CJP, which comes in several forms. For example, I contribute to the writing and editing of a written curriculum for judges on climate science. I also generally advise CJP members on scientific questions. Another role that I have is research. So I conduct research on the science used in climate litigation in an effort to inform future project directions. And also, I organize events that connect scientists with judges. How do you make your research accessible to the general public and audiences outside of academia? Have you noticed any structural, cultural, or political barriers that make it difficult to communicate climate science to a wider audience effectively? Well, in the United States, climate change has unfortunately become a politicized topic. However, the science is apolitical, and in CJP, we work with folks of all different political backgrounds and viewpoints. And what I found is that if you take the time to actually explain how and why climate scientists know what we know, including of the various impacts, economic and otherwise, that serious people will take this issue to heart regardless of the politics around it. So rather than saying sort of, this is what the scientists are saying and you better listen, it's better to just show the data including the data about the impacts 
and including the impacts that might hit close to home to a particular audience. Well, I hope this episode is an example of you being able to show some of that research and how you came to your findings in your PhD. As an expert in oceanography and climate science, what responsibility do you feel towards shaping and engaging in current discussions about ocean law and climate policy? Science isn't done in isolation, and people with a background in climate science, including oceanography, largely recognize that. In some way, scientists are just the messengers of the data about the world, and we understand that data, its strengths, its weaknesses, and uncertainties more than other people. So personally, I see an incredible responsibility to make sure that decision makers are scientifically informed when they are tasked with making any decisions about uh, climate and ocean issues. And how do you plan to leverage your interdisciplinary scholarship when bridging gaps between science, law, and society throughout your career? One of the things that I'm working on is research project related to the science in state court climate litigation. And this project has the goal of sort of identifying the kind of science, the kind of sources, the kind of topics that are arising in climate litigation. And that work requires me to leverage not only my knowledge of, of scientific facts, but also uh, it has required me to learn how to read and analyze legal documents, which I had no background in before. And so sort of connecting these different areas of scholarship, both the legal research and the scientific worlds, uh, is something that I find personally very rewarding and hopefully is something that I'll be able to continue to do throughout my career. I hope so, too. I think you have the potential to make great change in that space. So for those that might want to learn more about your past work and maybe even read your findings, where should they go? Well, I encourage anyone interested to learn about these topics to check out the literature. I've published a few papers from the topics that we've discussed, which are all available on uh, Google Scholar. And yeah, I, I hope that, uh, that they're not too inaccessible as they are. Great. Well, thank you so much for joining me today. I learned a lot. Thank you. Thanks for having me. Thank you for tuning in to People, Places, Planet Pod, brought to you by the Environmental Law Institute. We would like to hear from you. So please send us your questions, comments, and ideas to podcast at ELI.org. And if you're interested in learning more about our work, attending one of our events, reading our publications, or becoming a member, please visit our website at www.eli.org.